He is the author of 1,200 hymns, poems, gospel songs, and 35 books. During his life, he made 21 world tours promoting evangelism and world missions. In this episode, we're going to hear a sermon by Canadian pastor, author, hymn writer, and missionary by proxy, Oswald J. Smith. I'm Elise, and you're listening to Revive Radio. Oswald Jeffrey Smith was born November 8, 1889, in Ontario, Canada. He was the eldest of ten children. He was a sickly and frail child, and once he was out of school for two years after a bout of pneumonia. It was assumed he wouldn't make it long in life, but he lived to be almost a hundred years old. He was saved in 1906 when he was 16 years old at an R.A. Torrey revival. R.A. Torrey was the successor to D.L. Moody in his successful ministry. A Toronto newspaper printed Tory's sermons, and Smith read them and convinced his father to allow him to go miss a day of school to attend services with his brother. When he was looking back on his thoughts about becoming a Christian, he said, As I opened my heart to the Savior, asking him to be my sin-bearer, my substitute, I felt no great change, no wonderful experience, but I trusted Christ Jesus from then on, and I experienced sweet peace. Soon after his conversion, he had an intense desire to preach the gospel. He said, I know as sure as I'm alive, I must preach the gospel. There's nothing else in the world for me. And he really wanted to be a missionary, but he was rejected multiple times due to his poor health. So he decided instead to go to the far interior of British Columbia and evangelize to Indian settlements. The hardships he faced there gave him a deep compassion for missionaries and a lifelong understanding of their difficulties. He also did mission work in eastern Kentucky, which is actually about an hour from where I grew up, which I find interesting because you just never know who goes to the same places you've been to. Just kind of interesting things. We're like, oh, yeah, I know where that's at. I've been there. It was here that he wrote his threefold decision. It says, I will think no thought, speak no word, and do no deed unworthy of a follower of Jesus Christ. I will give my life for service in any part of the world and in any capacity God wills that I should labor. I shall endeavor to do God's will from moment to moment as he reveals it to me. Smith was a firm believer in the idea that every minister or missionary should be very well trained. And so he went to a couple different schools, one of which being McCormick Seminary in Chicago, and he graduated in 1915. And he was still denied the opportunity to go to the mission field because he was still pretty sickly. But he made a commitment. If I can't go myself, I will send someone else. So then he began to evangelize to those who might actually go in his stead, and he spoke at a lot of youth meetings. While he was assistant pastor at Dale Presbyterian Church in Chicago, he met and married his wife, Daisy Billings, and they were married in 1916. And she helped him keep everything running, and after the kids were grown, she traveled with Oswald until she died in 1972. A large part of Oswald's life was his emphasis and passion for prayer. He said that intercessory prayer is not only the highest form of Christian service, but also the hardest kind of work. He believed in having a regular time and place for prayer, and he paced as he prayed to prevent distractions. Every decision of his life was guided by prayer, and more than anything else, he wanted to be used by God. In his book, The Man God Uses, prayer was a major component. In the book, he says, Prevailing prayer, prayer of travail, such as Jesus knew, will lead to God being glorified in your ministry. He had some very strong words for churches not invested or interested in missional work. 
He said, The church that does not evangelize will fossilize. Any church that is not seriously involved in fulfilling the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. Andrew Murray in his book School of Prayer says this, The Lord frequently taught his disciples that they must pray, and how, but seldom what to pray. This he left to their sense of need and the leading of the Spirit. But here we have one thing he expressly enjoins them to remember. In view of the plenteous harvest and the need for reapers, they must cry to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. In 1928, he launched the People's Church in Toronto. Thousands of people attended, interested in evangelism and missions work and giving, and they gave millions to help spread the gospel throughout the world. I'm not going to give you the whole story because this sermon gives you a ton of information and really interesting things about his life and mission, so I don't want to ruin any of that for you. I will say, though, the story he tells about the Scottish missionary was very, very powerful stuff. He died in 1986 at the age of 96, this man who wasn't expected to live to adulthood. Billy Graham preached his funeral service. He also preached Vance Havner's, who we covered in the previous episode. Billy Graham was kind of like Charles Spurgeon in that he seemed to know everybody in the Christian evangelical circuit, and everyone he knew impacted and influenced him. He said this of Oswald Smith, The name Oswald J. Smith symbolizes worldwide evangelism. Some men are called to minister the gospel in a city, others to a nation, and a few in each century to the whole world. He will go down in history as the greatest combination pastor, hymn writer, missionary statesman, and evangelist of our time. He was the most remarkable man I have ever met. Years ago, I went through the Bible to see if I could stay in Canada and obey God. Would it be possible, I asked myself, for me to enjoy a comfortable pastorate, never cross the boundaries of my country, and still carry out the post-resurrection commands of my Lord and satisfy God? And as I studied the Bible, I found such expressions as these, all nations, all the world, every creature, every kindred and tongue and people and nation, the uttermost part of the earth. In other words, the gospel I discovered was to be given to the entire world. Every nation, kindred, tongue and people must hear it. And if we neglect one nation, we have not obeyed God's command. When I was 18 years of age, I went to the Indians of British Columbia. I lived in a little shack on an Indian reserve all alone up near Alaska, between three and 4,000 miles from home. I stayed away for over a year. Then realizing that I needed more education, I returned at last to civilization and settled down to a five-year course of theology, finally graduating and being ordained to the gospel minister. I then applied to the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions for work in India. My case was carefully considered. I appeared personally before the board, and at last a decision was reached. I was rejected. The board felt that I would not be suitable for missionary work, and so I was turned down. I then turned to work at home, became pastor in Dale Presbyterian Church, Toronto, and later the Alliance Tabernacle. But I was not satisfied. I knew that I had to do something. I had seen the vision. Finally, I struck out on my own going to the Russian mission fields of Europe and preaching to vast multitudes all over Latvia, Estonia, and Poland. Finally, one day, after having preached till I was worn out, I fainted dead away and returned home. All over the United States and Canada I traveled, 
holding evangelistic campaigns. Finally, I felt the urge again, and this time I went to Spain. But again, I became ill and had to come back. Then I launched the People's Church in Toronto. That was in the year 1930. Two years later, the urge came upon me once more, and I left for Africa. By horseback, I penetrated back into the interior in the company of Dr. Thomas Lambie, riding some 30 miles a day, finally collapsing in the long grass of Africa. And after a serious illness that lasted for six weeks, I was brought back once more to civilization. By this time, I was beginning to feel that the board had been right after all, and that I was not fitted for missionary work. However, I had seen the vision. I knew that the other nations had to hear the gospel, and in 1938, I went once again, determined to do my part, if at all possible, to help evangelize the world. This time I left for the far Pacific, and after traveling by steamer for 31 days, I found myself preaching to the cannibals, the savages, and the Christians of the Solomon Islands. At length, however, I contracted malaria fever, which lasted for three years, and again and again, month after month, laid me low. Finally, one day, Dr. Northcote Deck and the other missionaries put me on a steamer and sent me back to my work in Toronto. I had tried to go, and had visited altogether some 66 countries, but I had discovered that it would be most difficult for me to live on the mission field. In the early days of my ministry, realizing that I could not go myself, I turned to substitutes. One day I approached Reverend J.H.W. Cook, the leader of the Evangelical Union of South America. You want to send out some new missionaries, I asked. Yes, he replied, we have five ready to go. Why don't you send them, I inquired. We do not have the money, was his reply. If I can succeed in raising the funds for their transportation, will you allow me to support them, I asked him. His face lit up as he responded in the affirmative. Never will I forget the day I placed those five missionaries on the platform of the People's Church and challenged the congregation to send them out. They did so. Then the five became ten, the ten twenty, the twenty forty, the forty one hundred, the one hundred two hundred, the two hundred three hundred and sixty. Now we have an army of laborers serving as our substitutes on some forty different foreign fields under 35 faith missionary societies, and we contribute toward their personal support. But I was not satisfied. I am praying constantly, even now, and this is my prayer. Lord, let me live. Let me live, if it be thy will, until we have 400 missionaries on the foreign fields of earth. I feel that that is the number the people's church should be helping to support, and I will never be satisfied until we have at least that many missionaries in the regions beyond. This is what I am living for. I tried to go myself. As a matter of fact, I went, but each time it seemed that I had to come back. I knew then that there was only one thing left for me to do, namely to send others. That is why I travel all over the United States of America, the Dominion of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain. I go in order to hold missionary conventions and to challenge young people. I must do all I can to find and send substitutes. But, you ask, why go before all have been saved here? There is so much to be done at home. Why not complete the work of the homeland before going to the foreign field? Everywhere I go, that question is asked. Let me answer it by asking three or four others. First, why did David Livingston leave Scotland 
Go to Africa before everyone in Scotland had become a Christian. Why? There are still thousands in Scotland who have not even yet decided for Christ. And yet, years ago, Livingston left his own land and went to dark, benighted Africa. I ask you, why? Second, why did William Carey leave England and go to India before everyone in England had been Christianized? Why? There are still some in England who have not been won to Christ. Third, why did Judson leave America and go to Burma before everyone in America had been brought to Christ? Why? There are still a few in the States who have not yet been Christianized. Lastly, why did the Apostle Paul leave for Europe before Palestine had heard the gospel? Why? Paul, you remember, deliberately turned from his own country and went to our forefathers in Europe in order to evangelize them. Why, I ask, did he do it? Ought he not to have stayed in Palestine at least until they had heard the message? My friends, there is only one answer, and I give it in the words of the Bible. The field is the world. The United States of America is not the world. Great Britain is not the world. The field is the whole world. You never in your life heard of a farmer working in one little corner of his field. The farmer works the whole field. The United States is but one corner. Canada is but a little corner. The world, the whole world must be evangelized. And since the field is the world, we have no choice but to go to every part of it. The world is one, and it must be done, not corner by corner, but as a whole. The tobacco firms have their agents in the most distant places. Millions of cigarettes are given away to create new appetites. You mean to say that the reason for it is because there is no longer any demand at home? Of course not. Yet the tobacco firms are already sending their missionaries into foreign lands. They want new markets. They are wiser than we are. For that, after all, is God's plan, and we would do well to emulate them. It has never been God's will that we should remain at home until the work here is finished. He wants us to go to the entire world, to work the whole field, simultaneously. Do you know what you are saying when you say you do not believe in missions? You are saying that Paul made a mistake, that he should have left your forefathers in Europe pagan, that it would have been better if he had stayed at home in Palestine, so that you might have remained in heathenism. Is that what you think? Are you sorry you are not still a heathen? You must be if you do not believe in missions. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ fed the 5,000? Do you recall how he had them sit down row upon row on the green grass? Then do you remember how he took the loaves and fishes and blessed them and then broke them and gave them to his disciples? And do you remember how the disciples started at one end of the front row? and went right along that front row, giving everyone a helping. Then do you recall how they turned right around and started back along that front row again, asking everyone to take a second helping? Do you remember? No. A thousand times no. Had they done that, those in the back rows would have been rising up and protesting most vigorously. Here they would have been saying, Come back here. Give us a helping. We have not had any yet. We are starving. It isn't right. It isn't fair. Why should those people in the front rows have a second helping before we have had a first? And they would have been right. We talk about the second coming of Christ. They haven't heard about the first coming yet. It just isn't fair. Why should anyone hear the gospel twice before everyone has heard it once? You know as well as I do that no one individual in the entire company of 5,000 men 
Besides, women and children got a second helping until everyone had had a first helping. There was an absolutely equal distribution of the food. My friends, I have been with the back rows. I have seen the countless millions in those back rows famishing for the bread of life. Is it right? Should we be concentrating on the front rows? Ought we not rather to be training the front rows to share what they have with the back rows, thus reach them with the gospel, those for whom nothing has been prepared? You will have to decide. You will have to decide whether you are going to spend your life feeding the front rows or whether you are going to give your life for the back rows, those who are in dire need, those for whom nothing has been prepared. Dr. Alexander Duff, that great veteran missionary to India, returned to Scotland to die. And as he stood before the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, he made his appeal. But there was no response. In the midst of his appeal, he fainted and was carried off the platform. The doctor bent over him and examined his heart. Presently, he opened his eyes. Where am I? He cried. Where am I? Lie still, said the physician. Your heart is very weak. What, exclaimed the old warrior, I must finish my appeal. Take me back, take me back. I haven't finished my appeal. Lie still, said the doctor again. You are too weak to go back. You will go back at the peril of your life. But in spite of the protests of the physician, the old white-haired warrior struggled to his feet. And with the doctor on one side and the moderator on the other side, he again mounted the steps of the pulpit platform. And as he did so, the entire assembly rose to do him honor. Then he continued his appeal, and this is what he said. When Queen Victoria calls for volunteers for India, hundreds of young men spring to the covers. But when King Jesus calls, no one responds. He paused. There was silence. Again he spoke. Is it true, he said, that the fathers and mothers of Scotland have no more sons to give for India. Again he paused. Still there was silence. Very well, he concluded. If Scotland has no more young men to send to India, then, aged though I am, I'll go back to India. I can lie down on the banks of the Ganges, and I can die. Thereby I can let the peoples of India know that there's one man in Scotland who loves them enough to give his life for them. In a moment, young men all over the assembly sprang to their feet, crying out, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. After the old white-haired warrior had been laid to rest, those young men, having graduated and having been ordained to the ministry, became his substitutes in dark, benighted India. My friend, have you been crying out while I've been speaking? I'll go. I'll go. What are you going to do with that light that God has given you? There are only one of two things that you can do. You can either waste it or you can invest it. You can do what millions of other young people are doing. You can grow up with your education. 
Get married, have children, go to work, live your life, die. That'll be all there'll be to it. Or you can invest that life of yours. You can invest it for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can make it count for God. You know that there are 2,000 tribes that have never yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. In New Guinea alone, there are some 521 tribes. In the South Pacific Islands, there are some 500 tribes. In Africa, there are 350. In South America, there are 300. There are 2,000 tribes throughout this world of ours still waiting for the messengers of God's salvation. You can have a whole tribe to yourself. And you say, but Dr. Smith, I'm heading toward a great position here in America. Yes, my friend, and there are hundreds of others who would be glad to get that same position. But out there in the darkness of heathenism, you can have the position all to yourself. You can have all the room you want. No one will be treading on your toes. You can labor there for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the reward that God has promised will be awaiting you. There will be those who will rise up to call you blessed. You will have invested your life. And your life will count for God. But you must make the decision. What are you going to do with your life? The master tells his servants that he is leaving, but that he will be returning. While he is gone, they are to bring the entire estate under cultivation. They begin working around the house. They beautify the gardens and flower beds. Next year, the weeds grow, and again they go to work, keeping the lawns in perfect condition. Presently, one of them remembers his master's orders. I must go, he explains. Our master told us to bring the entire estate under cultivation, and he prepares to leave. But, they cry, we cannot spare you. See how fast the weeds grow. We need you here. In spite of their protests, however, he leaves and begins working in a far corner of the estate. Later on, two others remember their Lord's orders, and in spite of objections, they too go and cultivate another part of the estate. At last, their master returns. He is pleased as he looks at the flower beds and gardens and the lawns around his house. But before rewarding his servants, he decides to explore the rest of the estate, and as he does so, his heart sinks, for he sees nothing but wilderness and marsh, and he realizes that there has not even been the attempt made to cultivate it. Finally, he comes to the one man working all by himself in a distant part of the estate, and he rewards him richly. He discovers the two in still another part, and again rewards them. Then he returns to headquarters where his servants are waiting, expecting a reward, but his face indicates displeasure. Have we not been faithful, they exclaim? Look at these flower beds and gardens. Look at these lawns. Are they not beautiful? And have we not worked hard? Yes, he replies, you have done your best. You have been faithful. You have labored diligently. Well, then, they cry, why are you disappointed? Are we not entitled to a reward? There's one thing you have forgotten, he replies. You have forgotten my orders. I did not tell you to work the same gardens and lawns again and again, year after year. I told you to bring the entire state under cultivation, to cultivate it at least once. That you did not do. In fact, you did not even attempt to cultivate it. And when your companions insisted upon going and doing their part, 
You objected. No, there is no reward. Many a one I am afraid is going to be disappointed. You may be that one. You may have won many souls in your town. You may have been most faithful to your church. But what have you done for those in heathen darkness? Did you ever think of going yourself? Have you ever given your money that someone else might go? Have you prayed? What part have you had in the evangelization of the world? Have you obeyed orders? Have you done what you could to bring the entire state under cultivation? Or have you been satisfied to work in your own community and let the rest of the world perish? If you want to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And if you want to receive the promised reward, the diadem or the crown, you had better get busy and do what you can to publish his gospel among all nations. Or you will be a missing Christian in the day of reward. In this sermon, Smith said something that stuck out to me. He put it in a way I'd never thought of before. He said there are two things you can do with your life. Only two. You can choose to waste it, or you can choose to invest it. According to the International Missions Board, there are 11,732 people groups in the world. Of those 11,732, 3,056 of those are entirely unengaged and unreached. These stats are a bit higher than Smith gives in his message. I assume it's because as time has gone on, we've discovered more places and more people. So with that in mind, there are a few things we can choose to do as Christians. We can go, we can give, we can pray, or we can do all three. If you enjoyed this episode or felt challenged by this sermon and want to challenge others, I encourage you to share it out on the socials. We have so many of these pastors, evangelists, missionaries that are quickly forgotten. Revive Studios is dedicated to bringing them back and making them accessible to everyone. There's so much depth, correction, and encouragement that is found through these sermons or stories of these spiritual giants of our faith. I want them to get out there to as many people as possible to help strengthen and encourage other believers. So thanks for listening to Revive Radio. I'm Elise.